we did Psalm 40 as a little series for Christmas. It's out there in the archive where we looked at it in a little bit of detail because it's about the incarnation, about the coming of Jesus. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon rock, upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and will trust in the Lord. Notice the way it works. God blesses and preserves and delivers, makes me stable, puts a song in my mouth to sing praises to him, and the people that hear me sing the song will learn of God and fear him and come to worship him. That's the design. My relationship with God and your relationship with God is supposed to boil over. It's supposed to be contagious. It's supposed to be something that you're living and enjoying and sharing. How happy is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. I'm not going to go after foolishness to save me. I'm not going to go after arrogance and pride. There are proud people who will tell you they have it all figured out. Oh boy, do they have it figured out. But they don't. The, tr- the truth is that the path to glory in God's economy is humbling yourself before him and waiting for him to exalt you at the proper time. That's the pattern, as we'll see today. So I don't, I, the, the wise man hasn't turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you've done. Your thoughts toward us, there's none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. And remember, this is a Christmas psalm. Sacrifice a meal offering you've not desired, My ears you've dug, meaning I have a body that you made. Burn offering and offering you have not, sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This is a prophecy a thousand years before the fact of God who made all things, the Son of God, God the Son coming in the flesh of mankind in a body. What is God doing with a human body? It's the doctrine, beloved, of the incarnation that God took on flesh or carne, the meat that we're made of. He became one of us, the doctrine of the incarnation. And Jesus quoted this psalm and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I proclaim glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. See the pattern? Humbling himself before the Father, being glorified and exalted, proclaiming glad tidings in the congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. What does that mean? I haven't hidden it in my heart. It's not a secret that I belong to you. It's a proclamation to the world. My life is not just my little private affair between me and God. It is a billboard for the world to know the Creator. I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Are you saved, beloved? You better be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. The Apostle John tells us of the miracles of Jesus and says, these signs have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you have life in his name. The only life, 
The only way, the only truth, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth in the flesh of man to die for your sins on the cross in that body, to pay for your sins and mine. He was risen from the dead by the glory of God to proclaim eternal life to everyone who trusts in him, that he paid for our sins and rose from the dead. This is the gospel. Do you believe in Christ? Do you have it? Do you have the life? Because if you trust in Christ, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 and 13 says, you have the life if you have the son. Do you have the life? Because the pattern is that if you have the life, you live it. And if you're living the life, then your life is a testimony for your Lord Jesus Christ. And I am not saying that you and I need to be running around blasting people with the gospel and fire and forget encounters, as we would call it in the army. Oh, you're a human. Believe in Jesus. Oh, you're a human. Believe in Jesus. I'm not proposing that we run around drive-by gospeling people. Hey, but if, uh, if I'm headed to the lake of fire and somebody throws me a life, a life preserver, I better grab it. What I'm saying is that our life is a testimony and it's not supposed to be off concealed in a corner. We're a proclamation of the grace of God. Do you have eternal life? Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Well, you need to dwell on these things and they need to become more and more real to you. And so do I. So that as we encounter the world, we are that billboard. We are the proclamation of the grace of God. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. This is the part of the psalm where David is writing his experience. And he did struggle with sin. And uh, the Lord Jesus never did. So it's messianic in its prophetic aspect. And yet it's the experience of the human writer. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. This is what human beings who are not the Messiah have to say. As I'm struggling and consumed with sin, and I'm a product of my own bad choices. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back in dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! We have enemies, don't we? And the enemy of your soul, the main one, is the enemy of God, the devil and his fallen angels, and their full court press in an effort to change your perspective and make you think about you and make you think about your failings. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I'm afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. One of the great Christmas psalms prophesying that the, the Son would come in the flesh of man is written in the scroll of the book that Jesus would come to save us. And yet David's, David, Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather, writes this in a description inspired by the Spirit of his own struggle, his own challenge, his own need of the Savior that he is prophesying. If you'll turn, please, to the pattern of patterns in Philippians chapter 2, we'll do a little bit of exposition of one of my favorite passages on Christmas, on the incarnation, Philippians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so Philippians. The Pauline letters, a lot of them are really short. You turn one page and you're in the next one. And so some of you are wondering where in the world, or in the Bible even, would I find Philippians 2? And the way you would do that is you would look, this is my Bible in the front, and this is the back. And so you go to the, almost the back of the Bible where Paul is, where Paul's letters are. In the back, you just grab you about, what, the last eighth or tenth of the Bible, 
and then you and then you're in the Paul stuff or in the New Testament stuff, and you might be like, no, I'm in my concordance. Well, you got to go back, and then you'll find Revelation, and then you'll find Jude, and then you'll find First, uh, Second, Third John, and then you'll find. I'm not going to do the New Testament backwards. Uh, you're going to find yourself in Paul at some point. You might flip over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That's the Gospels. They're long. Go forward. Scroll forward. You might find yourself in Hebrews. Go back too far. You went too far, and you're you're bracketing down to the Pauline letters now. One of the problems of finding Paul's letters, as I've often told you, is the shuns. You have all the shuns. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And for new, new people to the Bible, if you're not really very experienced in the word, those sound very foreign and strange. Colossians. They're people from Colossae. The people in Philippi or Philippi are the Philippians. The people in Ephesus are the Ephesians. They're the shuns, right? Well, remember this. Um, Grinches eat popcorn. G E P C. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Or gals eat popcorn. Or guys eat popcorn. G E P C. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you find yourself in Ephesians, well, then you would scroll forward to Philippians. Have I got everybody now? Enough of that. You could have looked it up in the table of contents with that much information. All right, Philippians 2. Philippians 2, I'm jumping and we're parachuting into the middle of the letter. And to give you an exposition of Philippians 2 and the great Christmas passage of the Incarnation, I have to tell you what, if, what Philippians is all about. The occasion for the Apostle Paul to write Philippians is that he is in prison and he has been supported financially with a magnificent gift from Christians over in Greece, in Philippi, Macedonia. Named after Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before. And the people in Philippi, Philippi, have received an envoy, have received a, a missionary visit from the Apostle Paul, and he has discipled them as he's done in planting churches. And we have the story of Paul's encounters in Philippi, or Philippi, as we'd say today. You have Paul and Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and I'll never forget that because Paul and Silas preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer, the Roman jailer in the city of Philippi in, um, in the missionary journey, which he says... What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. Acts 16.31, or in our house, Acts 10.31, as we teach our little kids as they first learn to speak. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. That's in Philippi. And so the Apostle Paul has planted a church there. He's established a ministry with Lydia, the seller of purple, the first convert uh, in Europe in Paul's mission, and, and these people have grown and developed and matured, and they are a successful and functioning missionary in uh, equipping local church, and it is Paul's ministry, uh, Paul, uh, the, the Philippian ministry of financial support to Paul that enables him to go full-time in his ministry. He doesn't have to make tents as he did with them when he was there. He can be a full-time preacher of the gospel and devote himself entirely to the ministry of the word, in part because of the Philippian gift. I like to say that we as believers in our giving want to be Philippians and not Corinthians. We don't want to have to be told again and again, God loves a cheerful giver because we're not cheerful about giving. We want to be Philippians who understand that you reap what you sow. And so you sow to the spirit to reap the reward that he wants to give you, and you don't consider yourself a reservoir of blessing. Oh, good, he's blessed me. I get to hang on to that. We consider ourselves a conduit of God's blessing. And if there's a conduit, God sends some throughput, and you don't have to worry about the resources. 
And I'm not preaching the health and wealth gospel. I'm just saying the occasion for Paul writing the Philippians is because they're maturing, successful Christians who have sacrificially given to the ministry of the gospel. And we have much of Paul's ministry because of them. We need to go thank the Philippian believers when we meet them in the, in the rapture or if we go before. You need to go find you some Philippians and say, thank you for your support of Paul because what you did gave us so much of the New Testament. Paul writes to these people that are getting it right. And so he sees a flame and pours uh, an accelerant on it. I don't want to say gasoline. There's a lady recently who died pouring gasoline on a fire. I say that all the time. You just get a flame. You want to increase the flame, pour gasoline. While we're here, let's just say, don't ever pour gasoline on a fire. Gasoline is an explosive compound, especially as a vapor, and you are not going to be able to pour a little bit and get it away. It's the vapors that explode. So we pour diesel on a fire. Don't pour gasoline on a fire. Enough of my public service announcement. I hope nobody uh, here suffers the consequence of the folly of pouring. You can, and charcoal starter, you can pour that on a fire. Diesel, diesel uh, heating oil, you can pour that on a fire. Don't pour gasoline. It's the vapors that explode. All right. Philippians 2 is the part of the epistle where Paul gives them the pattern for life the pattern for the Christian life. There is so much helpful doctrine that comes out of the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. For example, his prayer life in chapter 1. He says, I thank my God in verse 3 of chapter 1 and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul teaches us what it is to pray about the gospel ministry. I'm thanking God for your participation in the gospel. Again, for their, their great gift that has supported him. For I'm confident of this thing, that he who began, began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers, participants, co-laborers in the gospel with, of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is teaching you how the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ feels about those who are co-laborers. He wants to co-locate with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to fellowship with them. It is a taste, a foretaste of what's coming in our Savior's kingdom. And so it's how to think about the body of Christ, for example. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. What does Paul ask for after giving thanks for these people's ministry? That their love would increase and abound. That they would love even more. This commendatory letter, like First and Second Thessalonians asks God that these who love would love still more. And this is the letter of chapter 3 in Philippians where we never think we've arrived, but we're always advancing. That your love would, would abound in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and promise of God. That they would be a product of the word of God more and more so that they're bearing fruit in their service to the Lord, born of that love that they have for God as we saw first hour, and therefore for what God loves. <clears throat> wow. Paul is excited about the Philippians, and this is not a correctional letter like Galatians and 1 and 2 Corinthians. It is a letter of commendation. He talks about the suffering that he's encountered in the gospel, and then he talks about what life is really about. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is under, in, in Roman prison. 
He's been hemmed in by the authorities. He is suffering. He is not at Club Med. He is suffering in his imprisonment. And he is able to say that even if this imprisonment issues forth in my death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Do you have that in your heart as far as your life and death are concerned? Is, is it true for you, honestly, if you look at yourself, for you to live is Christ, that Jesus Christ is your life? Can you, with the Apostle Paul, say that even if I die physically, I gain that I get to be face-to-face with Christ so that the one that I'm worshiping and serving in faith, not sight, becomes sight no longer needing faith? Do you understand that it's an improvement of our circumstance to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, which Paul says in this epistle, I'd rather be probably with the Lord, but I have to stay on and serve you. And I'm confident that I will, is what he says in his discussion. He commands them in verse 27 to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the, for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Paul does not tell them to be good people because God wants you to be good. This is Charles Dickens' summary of what God wants for his children in his children's account of the Gospels, the life of our Lord. Dickens, I am convinced, did not believe in the deity of Christ. And he did not understand what God's objectives were. He thought that God wanted moral reform, and that's why Scrooge gets saved. He gets religion not by Christ, but by the ghosts. The ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and Mar- past, present, future, and Marley teach Scrooge that he should be a good boy and not a bad boy. And this is one of the themes of Christmas is that we need to embrace peace and be good boys and girls and not bad boys and girls. Or as my kindergarten teacher said, don't chase each other with scissors. Be good boys and girls. But that's not the gospel. And that's not what you're here for, to just be morally good. You're here for a mission. And the letter to the Philippians is a gift that you need to open up every day if you're struggling with the concept of mission. You want these words that Paul says to them to apply to you. And that's only true if you're a Philippian. It's only true if you're on mission. And so Paul says not conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of being a good person. He says worthy of the gospel, which is a proclamation. We have a mission. And they're striving together for the faith of the gospel at the end of verse 27 so that they are even under opposition, they're being commended by God despite the opposition from the world. For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, in verse 29, not only to believe in him, I bet you, I, I, I pray that you do believe in him. I, I challenge you to consider Christ the only way, truth, and the life, the only hope. The only need you have is that you're going to die and face eternal separation from God, which is called the lake of fire. That's the only need we really have, and the only solution for it is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you need to trust in him. I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We've been called to this, he tells the Philippians. Experiencing the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul's an example in his suffering that the world is opposed to the gospel and those that proclaim the gospel are going to be uh, injured. They're going to be hurt by this ministry. You saw this conflict in me and you're experiencing in yourselves 
the commendatory letter for the Philippians is not that you're going to suffer God's discipline because you're denying the gospel, Galatians. It's that you are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ in the wrath of God's enemy. And God is bigger than God's enemy. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consideration, consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and those are stated that there are, if this is true, if you have this, make my joy complete. What does the apostle want for them? A successful mission team, successful life, individual life, self-governing for God in their worship combining together to be about the effort of the gospel. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The unity in the body of Christ is not in distinction from the singular, exclusive gospel of Jesus as the only way. It is united around that conviction. The person of Christ, his coming to save us from our sins is the basis for our union in Christ. And that basis is more important than any of the petty concerns that tend to divide us. We say no to this immature and carnal division over things like the Corinthians worry about who's the pastor, who to baptize me, who is my brand of Christianity. Paul says you're acting like unbelievers when you walk as mere men. Here... Unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is the basis for successful mission work and requires one single, one singular character quality that shines out above all others. And it's something you and I need to commit to today. One singular character quality that shines out above all the other things that we've talked about. And it's called humility. It is the willingness to see myself as God says I am, as I really am, and not to say, oh, shucks, I'm nothing, and not to say, oh, good, it's lucky for you that I showed up, but rather to say, I am made in God's image and his likeness to do his work. I'm flawed and broken in my sinfulness and yet made new in Christ for God's purposes. And that which is valuable about me comes from the hand of God and in his purpose. And that design of me calls for a certain direction and orientation of my life. That's Christian humility. It is the willingness to say that I am under my creator just exactly as he made me to be about what he made me for. And that is what my life must be about. That is Christian humility. Again, it is not what we would call a a radical self-abnegation. It is, though, it is a disregard of myself so that I can look alone at my Savior And that is a challenge, and that is a repentance, that is a change of mind that you and I need to engage in every single day. It is not about me, it is all about him. The only hope you and I have for significance in our lives where the day-to-day choices that we make actually matter eternally, the only chance we have is to disregard ourselves and fix our attention completely on Christ. That's the only way you get what you really want, which is for your life to matter for you to have significance, for you to count. It's counterintuitive to say that the last will be first and the first will be last. It's counterintuitive to say that you have to lose your life for his sake in order to find it. And those who hang on to their lives in disregard of Christ will lose it. You've wasted your life if you've made it about you. And that's what's coming in Philippians 2. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. One of the most radical statements in the Bible is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And you and I have various ways that we dodge it. Mr. Miyagi, is there a way to counterpunch when you dodge the thing? Ask drum. We have a way of dodging. That's not for me. I learned in, in boxing, I was a lot skinnier, that you're supposed to present as narrow a target as you can to the other guy because he's trying to punch you. So you don't stand like this, provide a big wall target, you provide a little narrow target so, you're, so you're, the boxing stance is like this. And we do this, we box with the word, and we find a way to dodge it. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. I don't know if that's really about me. How can I get around that one? How is that not for me? Oh, nobody does that. Ha ha, dodge it. No one does that. Consider one another as do not regard your, uh, let's see, let's, do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. They need to speak and I need to listen because they want to talk. That's the idea. Well, no, 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 I'm going to get my thing out there. What Paul says in Philippians 2.3 is so radical that we foolish, immature, sophomore Christians will adopt that boxing stance and say, no one's doing that, dodged it. Keep reading, pastor. We don't want to sit on that one. But this is the key to everything. Don't think about you. Think about Christ and what he wants for others. And that's how you have the one affection and the one mind and the unity of the spirit. And it's not about me having my way. And that's really challenging for leadership because leadership has to make decisions. We have to move forward. We have to go one way or another. Can't just dither. Can't just sit around and hover. We've got to move. We've got to advance. But it can't be, well, I say and I want and I think it has to be, God, what do you think and what do you want? And Jesus models this as we see the illustration of what Paul's talking about in the person of Jesus, which gets us to Christmas. Do not look out for your own personal interests is what the Greek actually says, but also, but even or even more for the interests of others. Meaning, as far as you're concerned, you need to become a servant and not one serving yourself or expecting others to serve you. If everybody is in a rush to don the towel, to, to doff the robe and don the towel and wash each other's feet, it's a beautiful thing. If a few people are carrying the towel to go wash the feet and everybody else is standing around waiting to be served, it's going to not be the design God has for it. And so that's why Jesus constantly shows us this model of humbling ourselves before God in service of others. And so now the illustration of the ethic that makes for a missional local church, a local church that is on mission to do the work of the gospel by being the body of Christ, by being knit together in love, by being attractive with the message of Christ, not just something that we say, but what we're living. The illustration is the most important doctrine in all the Bible. 2, 5 through 11, as an illustration, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the flesh of man. And it's the most important statement in the New Testament to tell us what exactly happened at Christmas. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the morphe, the form of God, the very essence of God is what that word means. It doesn't mean he looked like God. It meant he was God in the flesh. He was God uh, of the same essence as the Father. He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
The Father has glory exalted and above, and the, the Shekinah is the effulgence or the shining forth of God's glory. And we see it through creation. We see it through various works in the tabernacle. There's a light and a glory associated with God. And Jesus Christ, or God the Son, before being born and named Yeshua by his parents according to the angel's instructions, this second person of the Trinity, this Son of God, who is God the Son, has existed in eternal glory with the Father from eternity past. And he didn't consider that something to hang on to. Your King James says he didn't consider it robbery. The idea is that we're going to hang on to what is rightfully ours. I have pride of place. I should be treated a certain with a certain level of dignity. I'm a citizen. I pay my taxes, whatever, however we want to claw together some semblance of status that I deserve. Nobody had more right to exaltation, to glorification, to worship, to you name it, than God the Son. And he let it go. He let go the proper response that creation needs to have to its creator. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop having perfect, infinite righteousness, justice, love, and the holiness of God. He let go the insistence on being treated as God. Although existing in the, in the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he cannot, oh, he emptied himself. And this is where people have gotten heretical and they've misread the passage. It doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means that he humbled himself and he did not insist on the right response that creation must pay its creator. The creator of the heavens and the earth and the sustainer of all things was nailed to a crude Roman cross and publicly placarded, hung like a billboard that you don't mess with Rome. That's what crucifixion was. And in God's sovereign design from eternity past, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world was not a message, don't mess with Rome. It was a message that God loves you and he must deal with sin. And those two things are happening at the cross. Jesus is paying for your sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. He emptied himself by taking the form of a doulos. My Bible tries to soften the blow for an American audience and our sensitivity and say bondservant. But doulos has a singular word translation, and it means that you are not just under a bond. It means you are owned by someone, and that word is slave. There are many ways that we could define slavery. One of them is that you are owned or the possession of another. We can't really say that if we have a dead-end job and the boss is like a slave driver, a taskmaster, and can't really get out of it, we can't really say we're enslaved under those conditions because the boss doesn't own you. You in this country can say, I'm done. You may not have something else to go to, but you don't have to work there, and you're not owned. That's a really important part of what slavery is, is that you're possessed by another. And there is no lower level for the human experience than another human, another image bearer of God, own you an image bearer of God. You're supposed to be God's possession. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. On that coin is Caesar's image. So what image do you bear? You belong to him. So the idea of possession by a human, it's as low as it gets. 
There are other definitions of slavery, other factors which we would say slavery. If somebody owns me, but they give me the product of my effort, I get to, you know, to, to own the creativity that I bring, and so it enriches me, and I actually own my property. But someone just has paper on me, they say they own me. That's really not what we mean by slavery. It's got to be not only that I'm owned, but that the productivity that I bring, that that's owned as well. And so it's theft. The productivity, I work, I use my energy, my effort, my creativity, and someone else steals that for their own enrichment. That's part of slavery. I have a whole litany we could do on slavery. But it's, it's nothing you want to be. It's the lowest that exper- experience that humans can have, and, and all cultures have done it. Everybody's been in, in slavery. Every civilization, every culture, uh, has been, this has been a problem. But look what it says. He took the form of a slave and being made in likeness of men. This is the self-emptying of insistence on righteous glory that he deserves. He doesn't say, this is coming to me. He says, I've got a mission to do. And it turns out it was a temporary arrangement, very temporary. So let's recap a couple of things we've come up with. We've used the word morphe twice. Form. You have the word form in verse verse 6. He existed in the form of God. Again, that word does not mean it looked like he was God, but he was a little lower than God or something. It means that he was of the same essence of God. It's the Greek word morphe, not the English use of it. He was the very essence of God. And that means that he truly is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The second use of the word morphe or form is in verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. What this means is that he became an actual, completely true, real human. He didn't look like he was a man. In the, before Jesus was born of the virgin, the second person of the Trinity shows up in the Bible in many places in the Old Testament. Abraham has a conversation with him, and it is as though he's talking to a man, but he calls him Lord. That person is revealed as the angel of the Lord in some places, and in, and in the same next verse, it'll call and it'll say, the Lord said, because the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, is Yahweh. And this is a revelation that God has given. The second person, apparently the revealed person, the Trinity, has shown up in, in many times before, and he looked like a man. He was in the form of a man. But this is not that. This is that he was actually born in flesh and blood. Every human cell, I'm told, has 46 chromosomes. What we're saying about the virgin birth of Jesus is that 23 of the chromosomes of the actual humanity of Jesus Christ came from his mother Mary. That she's physically his, or Jesus is physically her son. Not that that there was a a divinely created embryo implanted in Mary. That's That's not what we're saying. We're saying that God provided 23 chromosomes of the male contribution in this, in this miraculous fertilization of Mary's ovum. We're saying she's actually the physical mother of our Savior. He is truly the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. We're saying that, that about Christ, that he truly is human. He's truly descended from David through Mary. And there is no male contribution because apparently by this unique moment in history, we see there's something about the sin of Adam, not Eve. There's something about transmission of the fall through the father, not the mother. 
Jesus is born without sin, and that is not to say Mary's without sin. And that's very offensive to a lot of people because they haven't reasoned this through, and they haven't really listened to the Scriptures. When Mary's wrong in the Gospels, she's very wrong. When she's right, she's very right, much like you and me, because she's a maturing believer who's trusting in God for the most part. What are we saying? We're, we're keeping our focus on the fact that Jesus Christ is truly man and he's truly God in one person forever. The big theological term we've been using for 1,700 years for this is the hypostatic union. I know, that's a big word, and we shouldn't use big words like that in church. But this is where I learned it, in church. I was amazed at my seminary brothers who did not know of these things when they got to seminary, when they're trying to learn Greek and Hebrew and teach God's people from his word. They did not know about the hypostatic union. I thought my pastor coined the phrase because he made up a bunch of theological terms. Well, the thing is, we've been talking about the union of two natures and one person for, for going on 2,000 years. And we're very thankful for those theologians who came before us and thought these things through and gave, gave words like person. Boy, that's a helpful word. We have three persons in God. Essence, the being of God is one, and the persons are three. One God and three persons. Tertullian said that in the 200s. That's the way to think of it. It's exactly what's going on. Well, in one of those two per, three persons of the Trinity, the three persons who are one God, you have, I know it's a mystery, just go with it. You have, because it's what the Scriptures require, You have in one of those persons, the creator, the second person, the executive, apparently, of the three. You have two natures beginning at Christmas. He took on the flesh of man, and it wasn't that he looked like a man. He truly became man. And your question of Psalm 40 is, what is God doing with a body? Why does he have a body? Because he's going to die for our sins in that body, that sinless, perfect body. Being found in verse 8 of Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, I know as you're reading through Philippians and your Bible read-through, and you need to do a Bible read-through all the time. Do it every year. Get real advanced and do it every six months. Read through. But don't say you've thoroughly studied or understood because you read through. It's a read-through. It's a good thing to do daily read through, get on it. But we were going to study and we're going to dig down a little bit. Nobody reading this thinks, oh, that's Christmas. This is the most important Christmas passage in the Bible. This is the one that tells you what's actually going on. Why the celebration? Why all the singing? Why are people coming from apparently Daniel's school of prophets or, or magi? Why are they coming from the East and saying, where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw a star. Have you seen him? And, and Herod, the Edomian, thinks he's the king of the Jews. And then he's got to go kill all the babies. What is the big deal here? It's that God took on the flesh of man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And this is why I think it's such a neat thing that we have it in our culture. The Puritans didn't want Christmas. They said that the Anglicans were decadent and they were overdoing this thing. And it was a big, a big drunken revelry thing that, you know, Fezziwig's party kind of thing. That they, they said, we've got to get past this. 
That's anachronistic. That was 200 years later. But we got to get past all this, uh, this Christmas and just get back to the Bible. And so the Puritans and the Separatists, the Pilgrims, they didn't believe in Christmas. But eventually enough English came over that Christmas caught on because the Anglicans really celebrated Christmas. It's the feast of Christmas, don't you understand? And Christmas is Christ Mass. You say a Mass in the Roman Catholic system for various things, for various saints, various things. And the one on December 25th is the Mass we say for Christ. And that's the tradition and the heritage and all that goes in. But here's what I want to say culturally as somebody that's not beholden to any of that. I don't have to, I don't have to bow to any of that because it's just culture and tradition. But culturally, it's very interesting that this is the one big one. This is the one where everybody goes from being in the red to in the black on, uh, on uh, Black Friday. This is the big one where everybody's shopping, where everybody's making a big deal. It's the feast or the festival in our culture, regardless of their religious convictions. It's the feast where people give big things and they make a big deal and there's a big celebration. There's more art. There's more cultural expression over this thing that happens every year than probably anything else. And the counterculture people are like, I'm for Halloween. Or the counterculture people are like, oh, no carols until, just please give us a break until after Thanksgiving. And all that, and they're angry that the Santa Claus comes out in October and all that stuff, right? And all the cultural stuff. But isn't it interesting that we're talking about this event? And what is it? What is it? It is that God, the creator, became one of us. That is all that it is and everything. And it's the most important doctrine of the Christian confession. It's what separates us from every other system, including and especially Judaism. It's the defining feature that the creator became a man. And in resurrection body after the cross, he is a man forevermore. So let's get past the humiliation to the glory. Verse 9 of Philippians 2 continues the pattern that we're supposed to think in ourselves as we're disregarding self and considering the other. In Philippians 2, 9, for this reason of his humbling himself to the point of death under God's mighty hand, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those on earth in heaven and uh, those, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, that's the humanity name of Christ, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus, the anointed one of Israel, the greater son of David, at the name of Jesus Christ, everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the exaltation and glory that is our central doctrine, but it is also our pattern. Remember why Paul gives us Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the pattern of humbling yourself before God to be exalted by him. The reason for the pattern of what Christ did at Christmas in the incarnation all the way to the death of the cross on Good Friday and then the rising in on Resurrection Sunday, the reason for the incarnation and his glorification resurrection body as a man at the right hand of the Father today, only one human is resurrected and glorified, and that's Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is the Son of Man in the flesh at the right hand of the Father The reason for the pattern in Philippians 2 is because you and I are supposed to have this thinking in ourselves, which was in him. It is given by Paul as an illustration. It's the most important doctrine of the Christian confession, and it is an illustration for you and me to dwell on, to think about, to reflect on, to assume as our pattern. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, remember a commendatory letter in Philippians, just as you've always obeyed in in my presence, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
How could anyone ever think that that verse says that you work to be saved, that you have to take communion to be saved, and you have to be baptized to be saved, and you have to give to the poor to be saved, and you have to do this and do that and do this and do that. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. That which is already true, live it out. The defining feature of my life for Paul in 121 should be that I'm uh, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Of course, you want to live out, work out your salvation. It's the most important thing about you. I know that you are you and an individual. You are beautiful and magnificent, every one of you, the way God made you. You have a uniqueness about you. You have an individual personhood and personality. You have things that you like and things that you don't like. And generally speaking, as I get to know you, I like you for both. I like you for the things that you do like, and I tend to like you for the things that you don't like. And we really have a lot in common that way. And you're individuals, but we have common ground. Some of you are smarter than others. Some of you are more gifted at craftsmanship or at some other thing than others. Some of you are naturally more musically inclined than others. And you all have the things that make you uniquely who you are as you've been composed. But as I ask you this question, I want you to really think about it. What is the central defining feature of you? The you-ness that is you. The I am the person that I am. My name, first name, last name. Going to be given a name that only the Lord knows in the resurrection. But you, what is the single defining feature of who you are? It needs to be that I have Christ and he has me. It needs to be my so great salvation. It needs to be the one thing that brings us together, no matter what our personalities, our likes, and our dislikes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will, that's to want, and to work for his good pleasure. The illustration of the incarnation is to become your pattern so that you're living it out, so that you humble yourself, to borrow Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, you humble yourself like Jesus did under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you like he did Jesus at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. The Christmas message isn't just that God came in the flesh to die for our sins. It's that having come in the flesh and dying for our sins, he's empowering us to live our lives, to please him on this mission of proclamation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's no greater calling. There's no higher privilege. There's nothing that you could want or aspire to that would be greater than breaking yourself down before God and saying, God, have your way. And then look at his word. He tells you what his way is for you to glorify him in this work of the gospel. With our, heads uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, not our heads closed, our heads bowed, we close the service this morning. Before we close with some song, we'll close with a, a, a self-check. Judge yourself and you will not be judged, Paul tells the Corinthian believers. Well, what about consider yourself where you stand before God right now? This is the amazing thing about salvation. Nobody knows but you and God. Nobody knows if you've actually trusted in Christ, and maybe you haven't really thought about this. A lot of people grow up in church. A lot of people have walked aisles and raised hands. There have even been baptisms where people said, yes, I believe in Jesus. But they said it. They didn't actually believe it. We hear a lot about people making professions. You're not saved by a profession of faith. You're saved by faith, faith alone in Christ. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Yes, I understand Romans 10, 9, and 10, but it's the faith in the heart that brings righteousness. So the challenge I have for you is, have you actually trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you considered Him who died in your place, who loved you this way? The Apostle Paul doesn't just say that God loved you and gave His Son for you. That's John 3.16. Paul says, Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me. He who had you in mind on the cross and died in your place and paid for your sins, have you trusted in Him? Heavenly Father, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know that He died in my place, and I know that He alone can save me from my sins. Father, we thank You for the eternal life that is ours through Him. Help us live it out. Help our young people learn not only to trust in You at the initial faith, but as a lifetime of walking with You and being part of Your works. God, glorify Yourself in our church family and our lives and bless our loved ones with the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen.